Welcome to episode 31, The Truth About Socialism, an introduction. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you are on Facebook or Twitter and topics such as socialism, the Federal Reserve, the government shutdown, birthright citizenship, Fortnite, or vaping comes up, please share the specific TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. If you are listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a minute to scroll down on the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. If you're feeling generous, please consider supporting the show financially. All donations will be used to expand the reach of the show. See the show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for our link to the patronage page. The easiest way to stay up to date on the podcast is to subscribe to it on iTunes or Google Play Music. It's also available on Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and now on YouTube. Finally, please consider joining the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. With the current state of the Democratic Party, which seems to be pushing for socialism, or democratic socialism as Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Kamala Harris advocate for, this episode needed to be recorded now because it's going to be a long road between now and the 2020 election, and this information needs to be available to counter their message of disdain for the wealthy, free stuff, greed, and resentment. The most important thing you should remember when it comes to discussions about socialism is the fact that there is no socialistic society success stories. Zero nada. It has failed every time it has been tried. The system fails the many, yet those in the powerful positions always thrive. The only thing for certain that you get with socialism is loss of freedom and unprecedented power to a minority of people. That alone should make you suspicious of anyone who advocates for this form of government. Maybe they assume that they will be members of this thriving ruling class. Let's briefly examine history. The Soviet Union and its satellites, like Romania and Czechoslovakia, all failed. What about Fabian socialism in Britain prior to Margaret Thatcher? Ugly. Argentina? Started in the 1940s. They ended up defaulting on loans decades later. Not good. India? Certainly not a considered a success story. Cuba? They're stuck in time in the 1950s. Look at the cars they drive over there. Venezuela went from one of the richest countries in South America to the poorest. They have food and medicine shortages. People have to do dumpster diving to get their food. There's gangs and violence. Greece, Cambodia, Ethiopia, Tanzania, Uganda. The list goes on and on, but they're all failures. Want to examine some of the leaders of these failed regimes? Research Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, and Mandora in Venezuela. These are bad dudes. And there are a lot more where that came from. What do we know about these socialistic regimes? They kill dissidents, they nationalize entire industries, they seize property, there's shortages of essential items like food and medicine, there's violence and coercion, currency collapses, hyperinflation, rigged elections, political prisoners, assassination of opposition leaders. Pollution in socialistic countries is off the charts. This is one of the most ironic results of socialism based on the people who advocate for it. It's liberals and progressives who push a socialistic agenda. These are the same people harping on climate change and global warming. Unfortunately for socialists, there is no one to be held accountable. See, when no one owns the property, no one cares about the property, thus the high levels of pollution. Nazis and communists are responsible for the deaths of 66 million people in the Soviet Union 
and between 30 and 60 million in communist China, and almost 3 million in Cambodia. The bottom line is, socialism is always an economic disaster as it rewards sloth and penalizes diligence and hard work. As Daniel Mitchell has said, Marxist socialism is disgusting and brutal compared to liberal socialism, but both versions lead to economic malaise. We have even better evidence when you examine instances where countries are split in two. One is socialistic or communistic, and the other free markets-based. In a word, the results are stark. Consider North Korea versus South Korea. I want you to Google the following phrase, quote, aerial photo of the Korean Peninsula at night, end quote. That tells you everything you need to know about that. What about East Germany versus West Germany? How did that work out for the East Germans? What about China? Consider Hong Kong versus socialistic China. One is a quasi-communistic and the other is a free market capitalistic. Stark results. More evidence is China's decade-long move away from central planning and towards more capitalistic policies. The results have been rising standards of living and improvements for millions of Chinese. Paul Craig Roberts wrote this. We all should be thankful for the Soviets because they have proved conclusively that socialism doesn't work. No one can say they didn't have enough power or enough bureaucracy or enough planners or they didn't go too far. Some of you may be screaming at me right now. Hey, what about the Scandinavian countries? Now that's an excellent question, but you will have to wait for episode number 32 to get my answer to that. I'll give you a hint. It's not what you think. Secondly, the message and result of socialism is immoral. The message plays on the worst instincts of mankind. It's based on envy, jealousy, greed, resentment, redistribution of wealth, promises of free stuff, forcibly taking from one and giving to another. You do that on a playground or a public park and you get your ass kicked or thrown in jail. However, you tell people that they are entitled to other people's stuff in order to buy votes and the result is these very same politicians build a fiefdom where only the elite thrive. It's disgusting. It's happening in America today. Where are the 10 richest counties in the country? I think 8 out of the 10 surround Washington, D.C. How's that for wealth and income inequality? Under socialism, the elite classes always end up living high on the hog, while everyone else splits up whatever's left over. Here's a perfect example. In Venezuela, where people wait in line for hours just to get food, busloads of elites are routinely brought in to jump the line and get theirs, leaving true socialism behind. The rest of the losers can get an equal share of the leftovers. Can you imagine the despair? Daniel J. Mitchell points out, you can't control an economy without controlling people. At the heart of this issue is power and control by the few, the elites that always emerge in socialistic societies. We cannot allow the ignorance of the masses to fall for the toxic rhetoric of socialists. Free stuff sounds good. Free college, free healthcare. It sounds compassionate and virtuous, but this part of the message not only plays on the entitlement component of the brain, but it plays on the ignorance of the people who fall for this rhetoric. This is really what's at the heart of socialism. Those politicians who advocate for it don't give a damn about you. If they did, they would tell you the truth about what their policies are going to result in. They drive you to resent and hate your fellow citizens, to feel entitled, to be jealous and resentful. Is that moral? They claim that those who disagree with them do not have compassion. 
No, actually, we have a lot of compassion. We are just unwilling to turn the definition over to people like you. You do not have the moral or legal right to take from me and give to others as you see fit. In so doing, obtain incredible amounts of power and control. We have a moral obligation to take care of others. It should be decentralized down to the local level, not centralized from Washington, D.C. Socialists speak about compassion, but it always ends in name-calling, denigration of the opposition, force, coercion, and intimidation, and ultimately turns to totalitarianism. Advocates are full of contradiction. The inherent contradiction is guaranteed equal prosperity for all, with no effort required in order to get yours. I once had a conversation on Facebook with a friend's father, who is and was a Bernie Sanders supporter. He was extolling the virtue of Bernie's message, and I pointed out to him that if we lived in the world according to Bernie, that his lifestyle would have been severely limited. See, he was a landlord. He bought properties, a lot of them, and rented them out. I told him the number of properties he owned and rented out would have been limited in a name of equality. As you might imagine, there was no response. Speaking of Bernie, remind me how many homes he has. If it's more than one, then he's a flaming hypocrite. By the way, he has three. Another inherent contradiction about socialism is the fact that you eventually run out of other people's money. So what's up with this latest craze among Democrats? They keep using the term democratic socialism. The easiest way for you to think of this is tyranny of the majority. See, minorities will be damned under this system. In theory, decisions about economic life are made by the workers themselves, so you are stuck with like a referendum-based economy, making the decisions about production of products and the number and level of services provided. So consider the grocery stores, consider the food and production industry under a democratic socialist system. How many milk alternatives do you think would be produced? Or like vegan food and gluten-free food? What about the choices of beer, wine, deli meat, cheese, and bread? Go into any American supermarket and try to imagine how decisions on all of those thousands of products would be made in this socialistic utopia. It's too complicated and would digress into a few experts making all the decision, the so-called planning boards. How is that a better solution than allowing the free market to make those decisions? The answer is it's not a better solution. However, if you demonize capitalism and free markets, you can slowly draw a portion of the population to at least lean in that direction. Thus, the most recent findings that millennials are receptive to socialism. Of course they are. They have been exposed to its supposed virtuous message for most of their lives without a counter-argument being presented. When it comes to the workplace, democratic socialism manifests itself by the workers organizing and making all the decisions without the need for a dastardly capitalist. This exposes another contradiction of socialism. Who is ultimately accountable for performance without the tyrannical, capitalistic boss man? That's a good question. The answer, of course, is no one. See, when everyone is in charge, no one is in charge. Isn't that common sense? Again, the question would be, why would you want to force this on existing companies? People have lived voluntarily in communes for centuries. Many of them are successful. But the key word here is voluntary. Why don't you get off your ass and start a company that operates by this democratic socialist model? Because it fails every time it's tried for the same reasons we will discuss shortly. It violates economic and natural law. Businesses run in this manner suffer from an incentive problem, discussed in more detail in a minute. The problem is there's people who are not willing to pull their own weight, and those who do eventually give up. Eventually no one is pulling any weight, 
and the system collapses. Let me tell you a story to illustrate. It's the story I told in episode number 21, The Truth About Thanksgiving. When the pilgrims landed in America, they decided to operate under socialistic principles. Everyone owned the land together, and everyone was going to work together to survive and hopefully thrive. Guess what happened? Well, when you violate both economic and natural laws, nothing good. People didn't pull their own weight when it came to all the activities, chores, and work that needed to get done, and many starved to death. So Governor Bradford put an end to that practice and allocated plots of land to the surviving pilgrims to do with what they wished. Now they were operating under sound economic and natural law principles. The incentive system worked its magic. You either worked or you starved. No more sitting on your ass waiting for someone else to do the work and bring you your dinner. Those who fell on hard times were taken care of by the community, not the government. Because that's consistent with natural law and human nature. Plus, they had a surplus of food and other essentials with which they could share with those who were struggling. In order to understand socialism at its most basic level, you have to go back to the Communist Manifesto written by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels in 1848. It is the blueprint to turning a society into their so-called socialistic utopia. The Communist Manifesto has ten tenets. I think seven or eight of them are relevant to us. The first one is abolition of property in land and application of all rents of land to public purposes. So no private property is basically what that means. Here's a fun but related fact. Did you know that the federal government is the largest property owner in the country? The second tenet of the Communist Manifesto was a heavy progressive and graduated income tax. Well, the 16th Amendment took care of this, and today Democratic presidential aspirants and members of Congress are fighting each other to see who can propose the highest tax rate. Just today I saw a proposal for 90%. This is on the heels of a 70% proposal just last week. Number three, abolition of all rights of inheritance. Can you say estate taxes and inheritance taxes? Number four, confiscation of the property of all immigrants and rebels. That's probably not relevant to America. Number five, centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly. Can you say Federal Reserve? From their perspective, this is a beautiful thing because you have a few people making decisions for the majority. See, it's easier to influence interest rates and the cost of credit through a few Federal Reserve Board members than hundreds of millions of people voluntarily taking, making transactions. Listen to episodes number 27 and 28 for more on the Federal Reserve. Number six, centralization of the means of communication and transport in the hands of the state. So just think mainstream media these days. Uh, number seven, eight, and nine are not really relevant. Number ten, though, free education for all children in public schools. Wow. Nothing need be said here. The state of the public education system in America is obvious to anyone with eyes and ears. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? In order to achieve socialism in America, it must be done incrementally over many decades. See, it is not natural, especially for Americans, to subscribe to the socialist way of thinking, taking from others, envy, jealousy, etc. However, we have been in a slow march towards socialism for many years. Incrementalism was very successful for progressives in the 20th century and still is today, using legislatures, courts and judges, government agencies, university indoctrination, friendly media, hate speech laws, forbidding dissent, etc., after all, there is never any rollback of a federal program. Federal regulations and federal agencies never close. Hell, their budgets never shrink. 
The debt grows and never shrinks. Spending never decreases. All of this moves us towards a government-run, top-down environment. So you have to understand, those who are hell-bent on breaking down America as founded are playing the long game. It really started in earnest in 1913. You had the Federal Reserve. You had the 16th Amendment. On the heels of that, you had World War I. You had the dramatic, unconstitutional expansion of the federal government's power with uh, the New Deal. You had Social Security. That's Episode 8. The Great Society, Medicare, Medicaid, the War on Poverty, and the Welfare State, the removal of the dollar from the gold standard, the iron grip on the education system, judicial activism, even minimum wage laws contribute. That's episode number four. Anytime government regulates the price of anything, it's central planning. To continue the list, socialized medicine, that's episode number 12, calls for the abolition of the electoral college would fall under this, unconstitutional gun control measures, death by a million regulations. It's, it's a list that goes on and on. In order to agree with socialism, you have to buy the argument that the state is the best arbiter to make sure those nasty, greedy capitalists stop taking advantage of the defenseless consumers and workers. Government regulations are the tools to achieve this policy incrementally. Subsidizing industries like green energy, farm subsidies, sugar subsidies also come under the same incremental umbrella. It's confiscating your money and giving it to other people. It's more central planning. It's unconstitutional. Even though few in mainstream liberal American politics are calling for the government control of the means of production, the incrementalism hampers the private sector. It stymies growth in the name of buying votes. Potential growth is limited. Any dollar or any time diverted from productive activities to paying for or dealing with government regulations has this effect. Multiply each dollar or time spent by millions of businesses and it adds up quickly. Think compliance workers in the banking industry. Why does socialism fail every time it's tried? Because as I mentioned earlier, it violates both economic and natural law. Socialism ignores economic laws such as supply and demand and incentives. See, the dream of socialism always collides with the realities of economics. As Daniel Mitchell has said, the greater the level of statism, the greater the level of economic damage. Socialism cannot bring prosperity because it destroys the market function of private property. Under socialism, private ownership of the means of production no longer exists, and thus there are no market prices for capital goods available. If no one owns anything, then no one gives a shit about anything. Hardcore socialists want the means of production and entire industries taken over by government. So there's no profit motive, and that equals shortages and rationing. There's no healthy market forces at work. If you remove the profit motive, then you have no innovation. Society is stuck in time. If you remove the profit motive, you have no productivity. You remove the incentive to work. If there is no pricing mechanism in the market, then nothing has any value. There's no feedback mechanism. Mises.org put it this way. The socialists ignore scarcity. Supply in relation to want makes goods valuable. In a market economy, the relative price shows the degree of scarcity. By observing the prices, the market participants receive the information that guides them to align their economic decisions to the market signals. The price system informs about relative scarcity. In capitalism, the motivation to gain profits and to avoid costs work as an incentive to behave rationally. In a market economy, the prices provide information and incentives simultaneously for the seller and buyer. When one entity, the government, owns or controls everything, 
you lose the market mechanism. See episode number 28, The Truth About the Federal Reserve, The Results, for more on this. It is better to have millions or billions of market actors performing hundreds of billions of transactions that determine prices than just one, the government. So let's briefly examine how socialism violates natural law. Governments are inherently inefficient and wasteful because they are using other people's money for the benefit of other people. Think back to my episode on the truth about socialized medicine. Because the government is spending other people's money on other people's health care, they don't really care about the quality of care. That's why you see long wait times, scarcity, and rationing. In the case of socialistic society, the government is using other people's money, property, business, industries to benefit other people. Therefore, quality, innovation, productivity go out the window. Mark Perry from Fee.org said socialism fails because it kills and destroys the human spirit. When you remove the profit motive, you remove selfishness from society. See, capitalism thrives because of selfishness. Now, I don't mean selfish in the sense of being egotistical or self-centered. I mean self-serving in the sense that you want to thrive financially, and in order to do that, you must find a need in society and fill it. Some do that by going to work for someone else and filling a need in their organization, utilizing their skill set. Others do that by starting a business that serves a need in society. Either way, the profit motive is what propels this drive to fill the need in the market. Jeffrey Herbener from Grove City College, an economics professor, had this to say, The just society is not some game of chess where we can move around each person like they exist to carry out the will of the people. We must not forget that in real life, these pawns move with their own objectives. If we depart from the notion that each person is an individual with their unique attributes and objectives, we can guarantee ourselves that only misery and depotism will quickly follow. Socialism also suffers from an incentive problem. What is the incentive to work hard and get ahead and do more than others? Socialism does not work because it's not consistent with fundamental principles of human behavior, i.e. incentives. See, public managers are not entrepreneurs. They're not using their own money, risking their own capital, and concerned about their customers. The incentive system is screwed up under socialism. Decisions are made outside the competitive process. We used to laugh at the central planning of the USSR, trying to make determinations from Moscow, how much wheat a farmer in Kiev should grow and at what price he can sell it. It's stupid. It lacks any common sense. Yet this kind of thinking is sweeping the Democratic Party in America. Where do the jobs come from? Where's, where do our creature comforts come from? As Jeff Dice said from Mises.org, without private owners, without capital at risk, without prices, and especially without profit and loss signals, economies quickly become corrupted and serve only the political class. See, the more you restrict and take, the less you will get. Innovators will stop innovating if they are being raped financially. Producers will stop producing. Risk takers will take their capital and risk it elsewhere, somewhere that does not tilt the game board away from potential profits and towards the government sucking up everything. I want to conclude this episode with another quote from Mark Perry. Socialism is the big lie of the 20th century. While it promised prosperity, equality, and security, it delivered poverty, misery, and tyranny. Equality was achieved only in the sense that everyone was equal in his or her misery. Socialism does not work because it is not consistent with the fundamental principles of human behavior. It's a system that ignores incentives. A centrally planned economy without market prices or profits, where property is owned by the state, 
is a system without an effective incentive mechanism to direct economic activity. He concludes by saying, By failing to emphasize incentives, socialism is a theory inconsistent with human nature and is therefore doomed to fail. Okay, so we covered a lot in this episode. As I pointed out that there has been no large-scale socialistic success stories in all of human history, we examined the morality, or better put, the immorality of the socialist message, we looked at the inherent contradictions hidden in plain sight in socialism, we looked at where this movement found its roots in the Communist Manifesto, how the shift towards socialism in America is being accomplished incrementally, and how socialism violates both economic and natural laws. In episode 32, we will continue our examination of socialism. In it, I will offer a list of questions for skeptics for you to use in your own conversations with friends or on social media. We will examine the truth about the Scandinavian countries and their so-called socialism. We'll talk about religion and socialism. And finally, we're going to talk about the solution to socialism, which is capitalism. And we're going to compare and contrast the two. Please join the conversation at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast.